This is Charles C. W. Cook, actual British person. Many have asked National Review, you seafaring magazine, will you finally sail the Atlantic? Our answer: yes, emphatically. Join us August 31st to September 7th aboard Cunard Line's spectacular Queen Mary II on NR's 2017 transatlantic crossing. This affordable once-in-a-lifetime experience on many a bucket list sails from England to New York. On board will be conservative stars including Tom Coburn, Michael Mukasey, Mark Helprin, Rich Lowry, Douglas Murray, ricochet regulars like Rob, Jonah, Jay, James, fellow Mad Dog Kevin, and many more. You know you want to come. Do it. Visit nrcruise.com to get complete information or call 888-283-8965. Every Ricochet member who signs up will get a $50 cabin credit. See you on board. Brought to you by Casper Mattresses for obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Go to casper.com slash glop and by HelloFresh, the meal delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient for $35 off your first week of deliveries. Visit HelloFresh.com and enter GLOPCULTURE35, all one word, when you subscribe. And by Safe for 24-7 protection you can really trust. Go to simplisafe.com slash ricochet. So I am John Podhoritz. This is Glob Culture. With me as always, somewhere driving through Manhattan on his way to his uh, airplane hangar uh, television studio is Rob Long. Hi, Rob. John, how are you? I am just peachy. And back from Chicago where he has finally had the American experience of the 21st century seeing Hamilton, Jonah Goldberg. Hi, Jonah. Hey, everybody. It's great to well, he saw, he saw the, you saw the Chicago Hamilton. Yeah, he saw the road show version yeah. of Hamilton. Kind oh. of a second rate. But he yeah. didn't see Lin-Manuel. Oh, he didn't like see he didn't David see Diggs. Then, yeah, then I don't know what I, show you saw. But he I, didn't see I, I Gold. He saw Wayne Brady. No, <laughs> Wayne Brady wasn't playing. He was. Oh, okay, Wayne Brady comes is, is coming in in a in a he month. A, Wayne, Wayne used to call, let's we, make a deal, Brady. He used to have, he'd be what we call uh, had a pilot out. Actors who were in plays, they would always have like if you want them in a pilot, they'd always say, "Oh no, I got a pilot out," which means 
I get to leave the production if I get a pilot. <laughs> so everyone uh, in Hamilton is pilot out? Is that they all got a pilot out. They're all going to be in like one hour crime drama, CSI right. something. If I could push back for just a moment and oh, note, yeah, well, yes, I did, I did see the roadshow of Hamilton. That's true. But I also saw it in the vastly more American city of Chicago than New York City, than the rootless cosmopolitan New York City. Um, so there's where that. it takes place. Yeah, where it takes place. By the way, so when they when back they before sing, it was rootless they, and cosmopolitan. When they <laughs> sing the big song, did they re? Did they relocate Hamilton to Chicago and they sang it's the second greatest city in the world? Is that as opposed to the New York version, which is it's the greatest city in the world? Yes. I'm just going to say yes. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. I'm making news here. Yes. (laughs) Breaking news. (laughs) Yes. Um, I I did finally see it. I did finally see the breaking news. I think it was last night or this morning. Breaking news. Trump tweets. The actual – all the networks now have a graphic for the breaking news of a Donald Trump tweet, which I thought um, is a sign either that uh, – normalcy, that we are normalizing or um, or that they're just trying out new graphics. They're not quite sure which one's going to stick. My my favorite thing about the – the um, I would say the evolution of the Trump tweet is that today, uh, just as he did a couple of days ago, Trump – tweeted a praise out of my friend Eli Lake for a piece that he published yesterday about how the uh, everyone, a piece that I actually echoed in a in the New York Post today about how people uh, okay. nervous yeah. nervous about the way in which uh, Michael Flynn was defenestrated as National Security Advisor because of the misuse of classified information and possibly raw material from an FBI investigation – and Trump tweeted his thank you to Eli uh, and and then linked to a piece by Eli in which Eli spends many hundreds of words insulting Trump, something that Trump did last week by tweeting out a piece from yeah. a Lawfare blog that made some argument that he liked but evidently did not read since it was very, very hostile. So – this is a new twist in that Trump is now publicizing arguments that are on his side that feature sort of. Well, Nobody ever right, clicks so, the link. I Yeah, I, I have two takes on this. One is he is – last night on a special report, he saw the Eli Lake thing referenced by Laura Ingram. And my suspicion is, is that that's all it took for him to say a great piece without actually reading it. But also you might recall that – I don't know, 18 months ago, um, I wrote a piece about Trump during the primaries saying how, yes, I thought he was going to go away, but the Republicans could learn something from him by the way he talks and he doesn't sound focus grouped and all this kind of stuff. And I made this point about him being a populist from Queens who – and I had this line in there where I said um, that for Trump, his pool of narcissists was page six of the New York Post. And – about a day later after that came out in the New York Post, I got a letter from Donald Trump's office, um, an email, which Trump had had ripped out the tear sheet of that page, circled that paragraph, and wrote me a little note saying, Jonah, we've come a long way together, thanking me, thinking that I had complimented him when he had read that I said he was a narcissist who thought the New York Post was his pool of narcissists, and when he read it in the New York Post – 
he took it as a compliment and th- sent me a thank you note for it. So I think there's a tendency that's that, weird. Yeah, that's an odd thing. Yeah. I think you know. Yeah, like, because yeah, a guy well, this twenty four months this, ago, like, a guy this oversensitive, I think. Um, you know, this is a nice, it's a nice development for him. But if he's this oversensitive now, he's just kind of glossing over things and just you know. I'm sure it's a compliment. I don't have to read too deep into it. Um, I like that. That shows uh, a, a slight return to you know men- mental health or mental balance, I guess. But I wrote a piece three years ago in which I suggested that in the first 27 days of the Trump administration, uh, his national security advisor – I had that person wrong – would be uh, fired. Um, I'll, I'll post a link. I'll post a link to it. I'll post yeah, a link please to it. post the link to it because yeah. uh, you know uh, about uh, thirty-one years ago, <laughs> I, I wrote a piece saying that the two-state solution was never going to work, and here we are uh, with uh, the president of the United States apparently abandoning the two-state solution. So, uh, you know, we can keep going because I think Jonah wrote a piece in the. Uh, Rodef Sholem Day School newspaper praising. I'm not going to help you out here. Keep going. Yeah. Uh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, John. Yes. I think. I think that. I think this particular joke thread is over. You know, but Sorry. sometimes if a joke isn't working, you need to beat it to death <laughs> so that it becomes funny, like the uh, Saturday Night Live. You remember that? Yeah. The, yeah. the or horrible. Like- non-working sketch that they just did over and over right. and over again and said, you think we like doing this? It's terrible. And therefore it became immortal. So we could just do the whole show just riffing on this joke and then it will become legendary. Or, we, or not. Or not. Yeah. yeah or or not. Not. Okay. Um, so, Rob, uh, as you wrote this thing three years ago about how the uh, national sure. supervisor would be gone within uh, 20... I'm not saying I'm prescient. I'm just saying five that, days, you know, I foretold. Uh, yeah. Um, can we get a quick take from from you, uh, Rhino, uh, Hollywood liberal, on the meaning of the current... Uh, dumpster fire uh, that appears to have overtaken Washington. Yeah, like, no, it's a little more toxic, but it resembles the dumpster fire of the first two months of the Clinton administration. I mean, the first one, Um, his first term, which is that, you know, nobody was playing positions. Everyone was like five-year-olds playing soccer, but he runs at the ball. Uh, There was no organization. There was no structure. There was nobody in charge. There was no administration. I mean, the irony is that this guy was supposed to be the businessman president, you know, a good CEO, and he's a lousy CEO because a good CEO wouldn't let any of this stuff happen. Um, and so, you know, you, the problem with Trump is that all of his mistakes or missteps seem like they, they, they can be seen in the right light to resemble the mistakes and missteps of previous inexperienced presidents. But with him, there's just like an extra toxicity and weirdness and danger to it, which I mean, partly that, that you know that's what makes it so much fun. Aren't you having fun? Oh, I wouldn't describe it as fun. <laughs> well, why were you? Well, why didn't you criticize you know Obama? <laughs> I uh, I believe I, I did criticize Obama <laughs> oh, okay. and quite quite well, Jonah frequently. Didn't. Quite quite that's frequently, right. um, I, I believe that one of the things that I said from the outset of the Obama administration through through its conclusion was 
that uh, uh, conservatives who walked around saying Obama's in over his head and he doesn't know what he's doing and he's, you know, he's an empty suit, he's just a celebrity, uh, were fundamentally misunderstanding him, that he had to be taken seriously, that he was a man with a very radical and serious right. program that he was going to affect and that this was self-destructive. Similarly, I think, or almost in reverse. What you were saying was let us dispense with the <laughs> that Let us dispel that, yeah. with the myth yeah. Yeah, that yeah, Obama right. doesn't know what he's doing, yes. Yeah, that's, um, that was good. That was good. Those are good lines. I, and I said, well, it I guess, times. Yeah. I, I guess so what I mean is that I mean I'm not trying to be an apologist here, and I'm certainly willing to uh, um, to hear different, as they say. But I mean, I hate I hate the direction that this statement is about to go in, but I, I can't help it. <laughs> go on. I just I, I like I like to Hillary see Clinton your administration would not be riven with like palace intrigue and backstabbing and fights and uh, uh, strategic leaks by at this point in its uh, troubled beginning. I mean, I uh, come on. But Hillary's well, the thing about the Hillary administration would have been that there would have been a continuity between her administration and the previous administration, which makes the you know which makes the. Uh, deployment of policies and things yeah. like that, the continuity makes it simpler and, and less and less uh, uh, disruptive and disjunctive. And so some of this is Trump being blamed for the ordinary and standard things that happen when when administrations pass from one party to the other and one ideological tendency to the other. But that doesn't explain, you know, these very mysterious signs of, you know, the war of all against all in the West Wing. Which uh, you know, I suppose could have been the case with with Hillary or not, but you know, one literally does not know from one hour to the next whether anyone who is speaking in the voice of the Trump administration is speaking for anyone but him or herself, and whether that that whatever they say is going to be contradicted an hour <laughs> later on another television show by another spokesman. So, so on the day that yeah, the day but that, isn't there a lot? I mean, aren't we just getting our panties in a twist here about very little? It, it feels this like stuff, all we're doing is like we're seeing every single thing that the Trump administration does, and we're and, and, and it's got an underscore of spooky music to it. So it all seems to be the worst thing ever. But yeah, you know, I think we still. I mean, I don't think we've even. Begun no, no, I to agree with you. In, I in that's way. what I'm saying. I'm saying that there's a lot of. Standard issue stuff here that that the that the the press, which is part partly historically illiterate, because so many people in the Washington press corps are like it's all new, old, and yeah. and, you know, and were in college practically when when we switched from Bush to Obama and have no memory of that, let alone the memory of the switch from Clinton to to Bush when the you know outgoing Clinton White House right. staffers or, or, did things yeah. like destroy the keyboards of the computers right. in, well, in the West. Or, they, the or they just don't know, they don't know American history in general. I mean, that's the other problem right. that they don't just right. don't know it. Um, right. But yes. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, look, look, so many things to freak out about. It doesn't seem like this is really worth freaking out about, but yeah, I okay, do love good. the, I do love the constant alarm bells. Go ahead. Sorry, Jonah. No, I'm not, I think that's all fair. I also think that like Trump must sit in his quiet hours during the commercial breaks on O'Reilly thinking, um, man, that transition was awesome, right? Because there was no governing, but everyone was treating him like a president. Everyone was coming and sucking up to him for jobs. He got to do these photo ops. It was like exactly what he wanted the presidency to be. 
And then he finds out that, no, that's not the actual presidency. That is like the, yeah. the really fun part of where everyone's congratulating you. All your enemies have to say, I was wrong. You were right. All that kind of stuff. And but you actually have no responsibility for getting anything done. It was sort of like my my stint as editor at large at National Review, you know. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I and I have to think that it's it's really starting to dawn on him what a heavy lift this job is. And right. I do think, but look, you could. I'm totally fine with you saying that the media is exaggerating this stuff, and I think that's probably true. Um, I've. The idea that this is unprecedented crisis, I think, is a little overdone, yada, yada, yada. At the same time, can we stop saying that this guy is playing four moves ahead and three-dimensional <laughs> chess and that he's got it a master plan and the media is just constantly falling for his traps? The idea that somehow his close confidant and national security advisor has to quit three weeks in in a in a cloud of controversy about Russian meddling, that somehow this is part of Trump's master plan, you yeah. have to you have to be so besotted with Kool Aid to think that that's even remotely possible. And yet, I hear it constantly from people on Twitter. It's like, oh, you think you think that that Trump doesn't know exactly what he's doing? I was like, yes. Yes, I think, I think he doesn't. Yeah. Well, he just remind me, he is the Charlie Sheen president in a lot of ways. You know, Charlie Sheen was like, you know, he had those the bad crystal meth teeth and the bulging eyes and the, like the constant vibrating of the head. And he couldn't sweating. He couldn't keep his hands straight. And he kept saying winning. This is winning. And be like, oh, well, it's not really winning, Charlie. You're, you're clearly a drug addict. Uh, winning. Uh, you just had a seizure. I don't think that's winning. Uh, that's sort Does of anyone what... smell burnt hair? Winning. <laughs> yeah, winning. Um, it, it is sort of what's going on here. Uh, I, 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 when I think of a problem, you ever see those movies where, you know, I, I've been in some of those meetings where they're like, oh, you know, he or she, the character, they need a job. It's going to be a fun job. It's got to be job that you know people can relate to let's make it marketing you know and it's a romantic comedy or something and the job is just marketing and then partly through the one of the clotheslines you use in the plot is like we've got to get that big presentation ready for the marketing presentation and it's just it's 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 not work it's like fake work and people are walking around with bags and stuff i gotta get that presentation well hey what are you doing tonight i'm working on the presentation and doing and i'm crunching numbers and it's like that's what I think some people think those jobs are. In fact, they're horrible and they're you know bone crushing. And I don't know if you ever saw one of the worst movies ever by one of the worst movie makers ever, Nancy Myers. Quiet John, she is, and she made a movie called Something's Got to Give, which is just hilariously awful. Every single frame of it is horrible. And there's a, a Diane Keaton plays a playwright, and. Um, to show, and this is like, you know, Nancy Myers is an actual writer. She should know better. But to show Diane Keaton writing, you know, she's writing her play. She, she's her hands are hovering above the keyboard, and then suddenly she's struck by inspiration. You almost see the light bulb above her head, and then she starts pounding away at the keyboard. Oh, it's coming, flowing. Oh, it's great. And then there's a montage of her laughing at her own work as she types it, and crying at her own work as she types it, and and then she finishes it in a flourish. You know, just by the end of the the music cue, the underscore, and um, and then someone you walk out of the booth and think, I guess that's what writers writing is. Writing is just slapping like a bear uh, with open fist, practically the keyboard while you emote. And first of it all, looks so I, easy. 
First of all, I really like Something's Gotta Give, number one, and number two. I, I know you I do. Have and literally, it's a terrible movie. I that have is literally, literally That is a wrong opinion. That is a I wrong opinion. I have no idea what that was an analogy to. What was that? Oh, that was an analogy to. <laughs> that's what Donald Trump's reaction. No, I was just speaking just off on a jag. About something's got to give, which has Sometimes no I get mad about stuff. We're talking about. I, I just got mad about it and had to, had to share it. No, it, that's what Donald Trump thought being president was. Slapping the keyboard and then say, done. And he forgot that every, every single thing has a ripple effect. Every single action has consequences and it has counter consequences. And there's a reason why presidents tend to be cautious and they tend to be slow and they tend to be uh, super, super careful. Yeah. It's sort of, I, I kept thinking of the Seinfeld where Kramer goes into the office where he doesn't even have a job. But he he's the just, intern. Yeah, he's the intern. He has his so briefcase. The- his briefcase only has a sleeve of Ritz crackers in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, go on. John. That, is, that, that, that analogy I understand. Uh, <laughs> and you know what else I understand, you guys? What I understand extremely well? Uh, Casper mattresses. And do you know why I understand Casper mattresses? Because yeah, I happen you... to own three Casper mattresses. I don't sleep on them. My three children sleep on them. But... You know, Casper is a sleep brand that created one perfect mattress sold directly to consumers. It eliminates commission-driven inflated prices, and I can attest to that. It's award-winning sleep surface developed in-house as a sleek design and is delivered in a small how-did-they-do-that-size box, which is also true. You kind of can't believe that the mattress is inside this box in your house. In addition to the mattress, Casper also offers an adaptive pillow, which I sleep on every night, and soft, breathable sheets. I don't have those. The mattress industry has forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. Casper is revolutionizing it by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to the consumer. An in-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing it. Its supportive memory foam offers a sleep surface that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature through the night. Buying a Casper mattress completely risk-free. Offers free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. So an obsessively engineered mattress, shockingly fair price, supportive memory foam. Time magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Free shipping and returns to U.S. and Canada. Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. And a special offer to our listeners. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash glop and using glop as your promo code. Our thanks to Casper Mattresses for sponsoring the glop podcast. So um, we are in the middle of award season. It is award season. Yeah. Every three days, there's an award show. There were the Grammys three nights ago, well, where Beyonce did a ten minute thing where she was standing there, you know, pregnant with twins, and there was a voiceover, and then there were people bowing down to her as though she were Nefertiti, and uh, it was extremely strange. And at the end, when it was all over, the entire audience erupted in applause for 10 minutes and Adele yeah. winning an award over her broke her Emmy and sobbed because it was so unfair that she won and not Beyonce. Um, uh, the most remarkable thing about the Grammys was how, how unpolitical they were. 
Are you telling me you well, sat through the Grammys, John? My wife made me sit through the Grammys. My wife, as you know, works in show business, and so I had to watch the Grammys. I work in show business, too. I ain't watching them. I I would really like some fact-checking on this. I'd like to get Ayala on here and confirm that, in fact, she made you watch the Grammys. I want to see Little Lies on HBO, and instead we watch the Grammys. Now, I will say this, which is they're doing this incredibly interesting thing on the Grammys. They've been doing it for a couple of years where – when people do numbers, they will do numbers with backup bands, shockingly interesting backup bands. Like Lady Gaga did a number with Shocking? Metallica, with Metallica you, as her backup band. Were you shocked, though? Were you it was kind of shocking. Were you in your Grammy watching Kimono, as well, I imagine know, it, you it, were? And... It didn't make me as uh, livid as Something's Gotta Give made you, Rob, but I, I will mm. say that oh. I... I I really thought that some of these sort of contrasts, you know, are fun. It's like, you know, as opposed to just the American bandstand thing where they would have someone come on stage and then lip sync to their song. I love that. Are you kidding me? That's my, one of my that's the thing I miss the most about music, musical stuff and variety shows on TV is the, the incredibly bad, almost like uh, half-hearted at best lip syncing where the, you know, the guy would just at some point just leave his mouth open. You know, or or just turn away from the mic because he just didn't want to do that anymore. And and everybody seemed to accept the fact that the song was being sung and played in exactly the same way live <laughs> as it was in a record studio. Like oh, it's a, and even a board they would do a board fade where the singer would just sort of start start fading out, and then everybody would the, the applause would start. I love that. I love that. Where is but that? But that's I why that I back. hated going to concerts. I hated going to concerts because I always wanted everything to sound like the yeah. single. And when they're in the <laughs> when they're in the concert, they make it different. And I never that's, wanted it different. <laughs> I wanted it like the single. That's you why know? you hated concerts, John. I also don't, don't like crowds and stuff. But that. But yeah, I, I mean, when say, I was like right. a teenager, that's it was yeah. like don't do it any differently. Yeah, we used to go to concerts and shout out. Uh, uh, you know, when people are calling out requests, play the songs uh, uh, from the album in the order they appear in the album. You know, don't <laughs> jump around. Like we. You but know, by the way, anyway. you know, people are doing that. Like Steely Dan, the people, these old bands are now giving concerts that are literally the album, you know. Right. Like, well, I can't remember just... which album Steely Dan is doing, but you go and they just play the album. That's because they can, you oh. know, they're, they're, they've just been wheeled from the day room. They're, they're, they, they think they're singing <laughs> to their daughter. oh my god well anyway um so i was by the way reminded of something interesting with the news that al jarreau the jazz singer and pop singer one of the most you know unthinkably talented you know performers of the you know the last 50 years died this week and i was remembering something striking that I, i i bet you guys didn't go through but Alger was no one had ever heard of him, and then in 1975 he released this album called "We Got By." And um, one day, like I guess I was 14 years old, I went to see a movie with my parents or something, maybe Murder on the Orient Express, something like that. And before, <laughs> wow, this is this is a word picture. Go ahead. And before the movie started, there was this, you know, there was like a trailer for a movie, and then there was this thing, and it said Warner Brothers Records, and then. This guy pops on screen and he sings this song called We Got By. It was like the first music video I, I ever saw. And it was Al Jarreau, 
singing the song We Got By. And Jarreau was notable for the fact that as he sang, he contorted his face a lot in order to produce the yeah, I do that. You know, the sounds, the sound, the sort of interesting sounds that he made. You know, one Jonah, of the- you do that when you give speeches. Is that that as I recall? I do. I do a whole routine about how my face is like a pot of pea soup coming slowly to boil. <laughs> oh, there, that is a great moment. That is a great scene. What is that? In? There, there's a scene where Rob, where Carl Reiner does that in a movie that he directed. There's like a, is it? Oh God, or something where you see Carl Reiner do this thing where he's pea soup. It's probably worth you can find it on, on YouTube. Anyway, the reason I'm telling the story is that it was this very striking and weird thing to see in a movie theater, see, you know, a song for five minutes, this sure, sort of synergy, this one guy. And, um, and I went out and I bought the album and I, you know, listened to it till the grooves ran, you know, till the, till, till it lost its grooves right. for about five years and I think that was, I think, the first music video I ever saw. Or that and then you never listened really- to it again. Yeah. Well, that was I, Synergy, right? I mean, that was, the, you know, when, when, yeah. uh, record comp- when movie, the- movie studios were buying record companies and the idea was to put them together. The, uh, depending on where you lived at the time, if you were living in, in you know, a, sort of a European backwater or any of this uh, – any, any non-media you know, media megalopolis like the United States – uh, you, that's really what you saw were music videos. That's what that's what it was. MTV Music TV when it started uh, was really just the music videos from Europe that record companies would make for Europe because they couldn't they weren't going to send the band to Amsterdam. <laughs> um, they just was like no. Uh, they were so, send a, they send a, a tape of the band a video. Just 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 because I, I I don't want to let this go by. It was the actor Jack Gilford. Oh. We used to do the pea soup thing. Really? And oh, I remember fantastic. I remember seeing it for the first time on Taxi. Wow. TV show where he played Alex Rieger's dad. But he apparently it's did amazing. it a lot it's of amazing. Time. And Jack Guilford was a Stalinist. So I think we need to warn people, trigger warning, Jack Guilford was a, was a follower of Joseph Stalin. Um, and was blacklisted, which was unjust, but he was a follower of Joseph Stalin. So when you well, watch coming do, back. do his I, pea soup imitation, just remember right. that right. you know sixty well, million we, people died. Well, apparently, apparently they did a new poll in the Soviet Union, and something like forty-eight percent uh, or in Russia, forty-eight percent of Russians have a positive view towards Stalin. To which I responded on Twitter: Sure, Stalin made made mistakes, but that's why pencils have erasers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Oh, um, yeah, that was that was good news. That was a very happy. That was that's really that just shows what the last twenty five years have really done for the world is that we're my coming response full my response circle to, back to Stalin. My response to that was like, oh, and 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 I don't remember you criticizing the czar when he did exactly the same thing. Ah, so we're, we're all getting czar to the top. AM corner, amen corner. Uh, but can I just say one thing about before we move on to the other topic, whatever that topic is? Um, <laughs> it, isn't it? I mean, it feels like we're watching the obverse or a converse or whatever it is, the bizarro world universe, the return of McCarthyism in some strange way. I don't mean that like, you know, capital M, but it is sort of weird to hear people saying this, this inside government official has ties to Russia. His loyalties are to Russia. 
And it's now the sort of the left that said trying to root out the Russian allies and the American government. I mean, um, it just seems kind of weird. Like we, yeah, watching wow, we, yesterday. Watching, I was waiting for you know, I was waiting for somebody from the nation to say, I have just received a book contract to write a book called "None Dare Call It Treason." Yeah, right, right. Which, as you might remember, <laughs> was the name of a famous right wing book in the. 1950s or 1960s um so that you know basically hearing hearing that these outraged outraged leftists maybe not the nation because they're too busy you know because they actually have a weird party line proffered by katrina vandenhuvel's husband that russia's good not bad but so say other other liberal media but hearing them talk archly about the horrors of treason you yeah. know when 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 you know they all they all cut their eye teeth supporting Castro and Ho Chi Minh and and other you know enemies of the United States and you know support Edward Snowden and uh, and people like and they, that is and is they hated start. it when we when we tried to root out a, a secret Russian allies and spies from the government in 1952 or three that was uh, McCarthyism it was one of the darkest periods of American history and now we're doing it. I can. But it's the other side. Go ahead. Well, there's also, I mean, just because this is one of my minor obsessions, what people always forget is that the House Un-American Activities Committee, which, you know, HUAC, which was this great focus of evil on the modern world, was originally founded to root out uh, pro-Germans and Nazis during what some historians called the Brown Scare, which predated the Red Scare. And um, the Stalinists, um, who hated like the Smith Act and all of these things and were furious about the unpatriotic nature of trying to go after spies in the government, were perfectly happy to turn over Trotskyites to the government for persecution under these McCarthyite things. The idea that somehow the left was always sort of against this stuff is a pure, pure construct of of left-wing and liberal historians making up a single narrative rather than what actually happened. It's a much more complicated thing, and I owe it to the memory of my late father to get that out there on the record. So there you go. Uh, I, uh, fair enough, but you know, this does take us into the topic that I think Rob was sort of leaning into, which is the fact lean that in. now... I lean in. You lean in like Sheryl Sandberg, who yeah. a friend of mine is convinced will be the Democratic nominee in 2020. Um and I think that's crazy, but it's a, I'll just, I'm just saying it so that if stay it happens on, in 2020, we can track, have it John. on our tape. Stay on target. Stay on target. Red leader. Um, but I, I think Jonah and Rob both alluded to the fact that every time you say something about, about Trump that is even implicitly negative, you get this, oh, so you say Trump can't do this, but what about when Obama did the IRS thing? Thing, yeah. Uh, which I get, Jonah, you, it's, did you dub it whataboutism? Well, yeah, what, what about, about Obama? Somebody's dubbed it whataboutism. I, I've been calling it whataboutism for a long time, <laughs> and um, but whataboutism I, is a phrase that goes back further than all this. Um, but yeah, it's whataboutism, and it's, 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 it's I, I don't want to name names because most of these people are my friends. Um, and this is not one of these things where we're not in the primaries anymore or any of that kind of stuff. And there's no reason to get particularly nasty about this. But there is this tendency on the right right now, including among some of my colleagues and a lot of my friends and a lot of people, certainly at Fox News, which is basically now a full-time media criticism outlet, outfit, 
um, that if you can't defend Donald Trump and something that he's doing, what you do is you point, you go straight to the Tukokwe argument and you attack the, the absolutely factual and real hypocrisy of Democrats in the New York Times and the Washington Post for their double standards and how they cover Trump versus covering Obama. And the problem is, is that, as I keep saying, it's, it's a necessary but insufficient argument because every one of these conservatives who's going out there saying, oh, you didn't mind, you know, the New York Times didn't mind when Obama did this or the New York Times didn't mind when, you know, uh, Bill Clinton did this or any of that kind of stuff. The problem is they never point out that these very conservatives who were saying that criticized Obama for doing something that Trump has done. And they're calling out the Times for having a double standard without acknowledging their own double standard. Unless you also criticize Trump for doing something that Obama did, then all you're, all you're doing is you're basically adopting the left standard and you're just as hypocritical as the people you're calling out to the mat. And it, but it's this safe harbor, this sort of what about Obama? You know, I get this constantly on Twitter. What – you know, why weren't you this critical of Obama? I'm like what? mountain of crack have you been smoking if you think i wasn't critical of obama and but you get this constantly it's this knee-jerk thing where if you don't if you criticize trump they immediately think well it must be because you're liberal because any criticism of trump is therefore liberal and you must be a hypocrite because you couldn't possibly have held obama to the same standard it is a it is a weird weird hothouse universe of nonsense going on out there and it's really taken over a lot of places on the right and it, it's driving me a little batty yeah i don't think it's weird at all i think is this is we are seeing in many instances over the last year and really over the last couple of months a kind of you know human nature expressing itself in its purest form which is to say uh, tribalism, uh, my side, right or wrong, uh, you're bad, everything you did was bad, anything that I do in the same mode is good because my motives are pure and, and their motives were corrupt and terrible. And and there is a whataboutism effect in some ways. Think about it in relation to the you know uh, way liberals are acting when, you know, uh, I mean, this works in reverse because now there's all this self-praise about tough, you know, there they are being, it's really journalism that has taken Mike Flynn down and investigative journalism and hard-hitting work, you know, really investigating the the dark corners of what's right. going on in Washington. <laughs> well, they've had eight and, years to and rest the, up. And the utter refusal to connect any dots over the last eight, eight years. They were I mean, resting the, you know, the yeah, they were resting up. That's right. They they needed to they needed to you yeah, know, screw their like, first sleeping place. Everybody I mean, needs it. they need a good solid eight years, kind of like you know eight hours of sleep. But they need a good solid eight years to kind of rest up and kind of pull themselves together. Do a lot of errands around the house. They had a lot of stuff to do, and now they're ready. It's a big pot of coffee, ready to greet the day. Right, because and this is not as Jonah would say, since I'm criticizing both. But I mean, the idea that on the one hand, you really deserve praise because you are, you know, basically being spoon fed leaks by the intelligence community about yeah. Michael Flynn. But you didn't do anything about the IRS scandal. 
which involved the literal right. use of government authority to e- attempt to suppress Un- conversation really by government authority. People forget how powerful the IRS is and, and yeah. what it can do without even without even getting a judge judge's order. I mean, no, it no, pull, case, pull money from your account. You know, right? Not just that, by the way, but in the in the lowest learner case, as as I can tell you from personal experience running a nonprofit. The IRS has the absolute authority to say you uh, cannot have a tax exemption, and you do. There is no right of appeal, really. I mean, if you can prove that it was done with with illegitimate intent, which was the you know effort made by those who sued right. the IRS and Lois Lerner, then you have a case because it's essentially a kind of fraud or conspiracy. But but um, this power is absolute. You don't have a right to a tax exemption. And so, you know, they can say, well, your behavior doesn't rise to the standard that we accept. And so you're done and you're done. You're finished. Yeah. But what about ism is so tempting. It's so delicious. It's so much fun to do because it's so easy. And you can all especially for the past eight years, you could always find something. I mean, it's really hard not to go to it. I do it. Oh, it's quite a. Four or five times a day in conversation because it's so much fun and it's so easy. Right. It's incredibly seductive. I agree with you. It's like, you know, I used, I would say during the Obama administration, you know, if this were Bush is the yes. lowest form of punditry. But it's the lowest form of punditry because it's like junk food. It's just so friggin' tasty. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> you know, and, and it's like, irrefutable. It's like even the people, even diehards, if they're you know have an ounce of fairness to them, will go, yeah, 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 okay. <laughs> but I mean that that to me is the you know sort of the the expressions of of of, of outrage about uh, you know I mean, it's the back scratching of the media and the self congratulation of the media. In the role of this is really a great moment because now we must yeah. rise to the occasion. And it was, of course, the Obama administration that created the uh, you know mad onrush of assertions of executive authority and executive power that made possible, say, the executive order on immigration. So, um, you know, having said that, it is better that they wake up than they, that they be asleep. I mean, I'm I'm sorry to say this because you know it, it's possible that what what the end result of this is the disempowerment of politicians and policies that you know we might support, but you know acts that degrade and you know and uh, and start to erode at you know our constitutional rights and the legitimacy of the republic are things that need to be exposed to the light of day so that they don't just happen while we weren't looking. Yeah, well, I'm where sorry, were you I'm the past eight years, John? I, that was I, happening. I, our liberties are being taken. Yeah, I didn't hear a peep out of you. You know where I was, Rob? I was in the kitchen. I was in the, in the kitchen? kitchen making what were dinner you doing? for were my you slaving? Were you trying to figure out what to serve your family for dinner? I was, Rob. And, oh, well, you know, it's impossible. And it's really Literally hard. an impossible task. It's not now. What? Because our next sponsor, HelloFresh. HelloFresh wants to change the way people eat forever. They believe everyone deserves honest, natural, delicious, healthy food. Whether you're a busy professional couple, a large family that runs at a breakneck pace, or someone who simply wants to start cooking more, HelloFresh makes it easier, tastier, and healthier than ever to enjoy the experience of cooking new recipes and eating together at home. 
HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. It creates delicious new recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. Sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. They employ a full-time registered dietitian on staff who reviews each recipe to ensure it is nutritionally balanced. HelloFresh currently offers customers a classic box or veggie box and will soon be launching a family box. You can order three, four, or five different meals per week designed for either two or four people, all delivered to your doorstep in a special insulated box. And here is a special offer to listeners of the Glop podcast. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter GLOPCULTURE35, all one word, when you subscribe. Our thanks to HelloFresh for sponsoring the GLOP podcast. Jonah, your trip to Chicago. Yes. So Rob and I have spent many minutes on this podcast, or did last year, many minutes on this podcast, talking about Hamilton. So it's been... A long time since we've had a Hamilton discussion, and you have just been to see Hamilton, albeit with the road and truck tour, so uh, bus and truck <laughs> tour. So um, your thoughts on this, uh, you know, what I would say is the, the only universally heralded piece of popular culture of the 21st century. Um, well, so first, of all, first of all, some backstory for those who don't know, um, my daughter, like a shocking number of of teen and preteen girls is fairly obsessed with Hamilton, um, which makes me very happy to a certain extent. I mean, the rapid curse word stuff I could do without, but that's fine. Um, and so it was her birthday. And so my wife and I told uh, our daughter, Lucy, that we couldn't do anything this weekend because I had to go to Yale. And um, but we would get around to doing something for her birthday. So we lied to her and then we went to her school and had her called to the principal's office like she was in trouble and said, we're going to Chicago. And we flew to Chicago to go see Hamilton. And um, what was interesting is, so my daughter has memorized the um, soundtrack of Hamilton. And she had no idea, and I had no idea, that there is literally only about five words of dialogue that aren't on the soundtrack, the mm-hmm. whole thing. So she knew the whole thing from beginning to end by heart. She thought it was like a normal musical where dialogue, 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 bust out into song, dialogue, 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 bust out into song. And I assumed that there was some dialogue in it. And that's why I said on Twitter that it was more like an opera. I understand that there are differences between opera, but like the whole thing is basically sung to one extent or another. I thought it was great. I thought it couldn't live up to the hype that it's gotten. Um, but, but that's so like it was not the life transforming experience that, you know, some people who I talked to two years ago made it into, but I thought it was really great. And I think one of the reasons why people like it is just because it's, it's new, you know, it's culturally new to have, you know, blacks and minorities doing founding fathers. It's new to have anybody doing anything positive about the founding fathers. It, (laughs) it manages to do this nice bridge between sort of hip hop contemporary stuff and classical musical things. And I think even people who made – like I, don't, I really didn't like its treatment of James Madison. I know that was a big point of contention for Rob. Um, but uh, I, I thought it was great. And I, you know, my daughter, she loved it. And, uh, but I don't I, – I just – by the time I saw it, 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 it was impossible to live up to the, the level of hype about it. But I thought it was great. 
Well, I'm I actually seen, here's what yeah. I liked about its, its depiction of Madison and Jefferson is that it was a very northern. It was very true to the point of view of the northern founders that these sort of snobbish, aristocratic, backstabbing southerners had this fancy view of themselves. Um, that's what I liked about it. I mean, I, I like the fact that even in the play, the the, the villain isn't even Aaron Burr. Uh, who kills Hamilton? It's really Thomas Jefferson, who's sort of a <laughs> who's it's kind of a hilarious character. Well, I agree with that. I I, I like the portrayal of Jefferson because there's so much hagiography of Jefferson. Yeah, but um, but but you know, Madison. They all is bragging about a Hamilton wrote more more essays in the Federalist Papers, <laughs> but Madison wrote the better ones. You know? <laughs> so anyway, well, uh, but it's I mean, a very New York. It's a very New York attitude, though. We got the biggest buildings, you know. It's, it's uh, I got the best words. I mean, I will say this, which is that Jefferson, I, I not having having seen this, you know, seventh rate production that uh, <laughs> that Jonah was, yeah, forced to see, you know, with the, the with the one with the, the, with, the, the sort of, with the giant, you know, with the with the yeah. like one painting. That says, you know, yeah. uh, New York. Or, you know, Only New like, Yorkie, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, starring sorry, you know, um, Adrian so I, I don't really The know fact that they did it in a, in a Hyatt conference room was really oh, a big step down. <laughs> well, I'm but, sure your daughter was but, happy, as happy as she, you know she could be with you know parents that whatever. I mean, the really the really interesting uh, sort of like creative aspect of of Hamilton, aside from you know the blending of hip hop and and this kind of schoolhouse rock, I think that was your analogy, Rob, that it's the greatest yes, it episode was. of schoolhouse rock ever, um, yeah. is that while Jefferson may be the villain or essentially you know, spelling out a different vision of America from the one Hamilton had, um, and so they're rivals, is that uh, Jefferson is the most entertaining and fun yeah. person on stage. So even though – He's kind of the bad guy every time. He's not really a bad guy, but he, he only comes on stage in the second act, and the person who plays him plays the Marquis de Lafayette in the first act and um, and is just, you know, like infectiously yeah. delightful. So well, uh, it's where, funny you say this. Okay, go on. I'll, but I have something go ahead. No, that, so okay. I'm just saying that, that well, dramaturgically, but, yeah, Burr a is a theater, more interesting right. – and Burr is a more interesting character than Hamilton – um, in the show, and has Burr the villain actually has the best song in the show, which is the room where it happens, I think, and the most dazzling stage moment. And so, you know, the thing about Lin Manuel Miranda that makes him so um, compelling as a as a man of the theater is that he knows where to put the juice. Yeah, you know, he knows that the juice. You're always is you're always coming with, back to the juice, John. <laughs> you you put the Jews in the in the backers audition. They're the ones sitting there uh, watching it and saying, I like, this, uh, "I like this, I like this Hamilton. He's uh, that's a fun show. It needs to lose ten minutes because at a certain point, my knee starts to send me hate mail. You know what I'm saying? You gotta get my the wife, yeah, the great neck." Yeah. So you gotta be done by ten tidy because I gotta get on the eleven eleven. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm there at eleven fifteen. I'm getting uh, I'm getting uh, messages from my colon I don't want to get. You know what I'm saying? So just wrap it up. Yeah. Um. But but it's it's funny you say this because like I was talking to my daughter about this. We all thought, and clearly the room thought that the drop dead funniest character in Hamilton was King George. And it's funny. The oh right. Sound- the soundtrack King George isn't 
nearly as good from the sound of it, at least. You know, the soundtrack is from the original cast. The Chicago one, I don't know if it's the right. same guy or what, but it's not. It's so I don't know if in the theater he does it as campy, but the King George in the version I saw was really hilarious and well, look, a yeah, showstopper. Yeah, it's right. a showstopper when Jonathan Groff did it. I mean, I saw him, and, and he was fantastic. I mean, uh, just two things. One, um, it's it's we don't we don't call it a soundtrack, Jonah. We call it the original cast album because, of course, Thank there was no you. soundtrack to a play. Thank uh, you. Rob. It was a live piece of theater. Just just you know, it's just kind of hurting my ears. But the yeah. second uh, thing is, I'm, I'm going to smash your guitar on the wall of Delta House. In a <laughs> yeah, minute, but go on. Yeah, but, yeah that's ex- and, and I would deserve it. I'm just, just I'm just <laughs> in the spirit of you know full disclosure. And the second thing I think is that the way it's constructed, the play is constructed. It, there's no reason to have King George except that you need a break. You yeah. need – this is old-style um, Broadway and play construction where yeah, I can't keep talking about the same thing. I need a break. Right. I need now. you to show me something different. I need to give – in many, many instances, I need to give the people backstage a chance to change costume. Right. Right. The ladies right. have got to change costume. Whatever it is, like – those things all have some organic and really technical and practical reason for being there, and they just totally work. And the idea that you hold back Jefferson, so he's got the big second act opener, which is the one of the hardest parts of every everything is the what do we how do I get you back? Yeah, yeah. After the break, mm-hmm. that's a really hard thing. How do I keep you there? Um, I mean, luckily in Broadway, the re- how I keep you there to the second act is you bought a ticket and you're like, ah, I'm here already. But um, in TV, is much harder because once you go to commercial, you might want to flip around. How do I bring you back? And when, I, when you come back, how do I keep you? It's, it's, it's like what everybody's been thinking about in theaters since Shakespeare. Um, how do I start this act? And you've, you know, you, maybe you had a glass of wine or something and you're just ready to like, ah, I like it, but I'm, maybe I would like to go home now. And I remember when I first saw Hamilton just standing there in the, in the uh, intermission and having my glass of wine. And then there are these uh, uh, people talking near me. And one of them said, wait a minute, where is Thomas Jefferson? <laughs> Isn't he supposed to be there? Wasn't he fighting? No, no, he was like in France. Mm-hmm. Wait, he missed the whole thing? And then you know, it was perfect <laughs> tee-up for the yeah. big second act opener, which is Thomas Jefferson coming in and kind of like – and the song for people who haven't seen it is called What Did I Miss? And it's hilarious. It's a guy who's like basically been on vacation for uh, the, the years of the the, the cold, hard, uh, uh, miserable years of the Revolutionary War, and he's been swanning around. My favorite word, uh, Paris, uh, drinking wine and pretending and, and getting into in, you know romantic intrigues. And he comes back, and now he's like, like he wants to be part of the team again. Um, it's great. It's really good. <laughs> it is great. Really now, good. two things. One is that the King George song is the first thing that Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote for Hamilton. He wrote it on his honeymoon while he was reading Ron Chernow's biography, which is what you know gave him the idea for the show. And he wrote this kind of Britpop song called, you know, You'll Be Back. And so it is, it is the wellspring from which the show sprang. And King George is on stage for nine minutes. He appears three times. Every time that he appears, he is he is on stage by himself. And it is a, I would say, an actor-proof part. Yeah, I've yeah. seen it twice. Yeah. I saw two different people. It, 
a third person, Brian Darcy James, opened it off Broadway. You saw whoever you saw, Jonah. There'll be somebody in London. There'll be somebody when it's done for a hundred years right. in high schools. The part everyone is going to want is King George because you got nine minutes. You got the best song in the show, and you get to wear the robes. Goes nuts for you three times. You get three minutes in the first act, six minutes in the first act, three minutes in the second act, and when you're done at the end of the second act. Like the people are basically like jumping on stage to put you on their shoulders. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a cameo role. I mean, it's the it's the role for the bus and truck show or the dinner bell theater show. It's the role for like the um, the sitcom, you know, Correct. retired sitcom guy. It's you know it's Jack the, Guilford. Yeah, Jack Guilford or Jack Guilford. You know, He'll do his before, thing, but and then he and, will. And Adrian's Med as King George the <laughs> Third. You know, I saw Adrian. We gotta get a young Larry Storch in here. Yeah, yeah, right. That's right at the. That's right at the at the dinner theater in Pasquale. The dinner bell. We used to call it the the dinner bell in like you know Covina or something. Right now, uh, guys, I heard an alarming story news story out of California recently. A woman was hired to clean homes was stealing from them at the same time. Can you imagine that? You pay someone to help take care of your home and they burglarize you. How do you protect yourself from something like this? A regular security system won't protect you from the people you know and trust. So here's what you do. You get SimpliSafe. SimpliSafe makes it possible to know what's going on at home. If you want to check in, just live stream footage from the SimpliSafe camera directly to your smartphone anytime you want. You can get text message and email alerts when someone arms or disarms your system. So you'll be sure confident that your home is safe. For 24-7 protection, you can really trust Go to simplisafe.com slash ricochet. That's S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash ricochet. Order a Simplisafe home security system today, and you'll even get our special 10% discount. Go now, simplisafe.com slash ricochet. Our thanks to Simplisafe for sponsoring the Glop podcast. So it, award season, award season, award season. So uh, a week from Sunday, uh, as we're taping this, will be the Oscars. And uh, does anybody have picks? I, I, I got two different things here. One is what you think is going to win. We could say picture, actor, actress, and what you would like to win if you have an opinion other than the conventional wisdom, which is that uh, La La Land will win for best picture, Emma Stone will win for best actress, and either Denzel Washington or Casey Affleck will win for best actor. Those are the those are the that's the conventional wisdom. Rob, what's your uh, where, where do you I hate this? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, La La Land's going to win probably because it's about Hollywood, and Hollywood loves itself. And you know, if, if you play a mentally disabled character, uh, you're almost surely going to get an Oscar. In the same way, if you make a movie about movies, you're going to get an Oscar. People love to uh, to watch themselves, even if they're already Why famous. Why don't they make a movie about a mentally disabled person who works in Hollywood? Well, by the way, uh, uh, I worked on a movie like that. I, I, my writing partner and I, years ago, uh, were working on exactly that. It was incredibly dark. But the idea was is that a a severely mentally handicapped but incredibly handsome guy, uh, just but like it's like Chance the Gardener, was cast in a in a movie and he became a huge star. But nobody uh, they they wanted to cover up the fact that he really you know he wasn't that smart and and he was came from a, a group home in i don't know why i'm pitching this but in, in like indiana 
and he promised his beautiful but mentally disabled girlfriend that he would bring her to Hollywood if he ever made it big in Hollywood. And now he's going to the Oscars and they're trying to shield him from the press and cover up the fact that he doesn't know anything and he has a hard time um you know he, you know he's just he's developmentally disabled and she sees it and all of her friends at the at the group home which is sort of everyone has a certain disability um they steal a bus and they do a road trip to go and bust it to the oscars so she can so it's her, so it's uh, so so it's the Keanu Reeves story it, but basically yes it was, it was a yeah. Reeves, Keanu Reeves story and we call you know the the actor's name was Ed something, and we called it Special Ed. It was, you know, I'm not proud you of didn't. it. You did. I'm not proud you of didn't. it. Didn't. I did. You I'm did. not proud of it. It it Fantastic. didn't go anywhere. But oh yeah. my god. Yeah. yeah. That is, you never go full Special Ed. Oh yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. <laughs> Jonah, do you have do you have an opinion on this, or are you are have you been so busy? Reading about the origins of wealth to have any uh, real, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I basically I'm with the conventional wisdom. I don't want Casey Affleck to win, um, and I think Denzel Washington is kind of underappreciated as as an actor. Um, so I'd like him to win, but I haven't seen either movie. I'd rather, you know, I I I'd rather drink fetid pond water than see the Casey Affleck movie, um, and. Um, so I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, I guess I don't have a really strong opinion about it. I'm sorry. Uh, well, here's, here's what I think. I think that if Hidden Figures had opened at Thanksgiving instead of Christmas time, it would lap La La Land and win Best Picture, but that it, it opened mm. too late and not enough people will have seen it, would have seen it by the time they had to vote. Because uh, it, it, I don't know. Well, it is the it could perfect, still win. Yeah. Could in theory, although I mean, basically every portent says La La Land wins, and La La Land is a vastly better picture than 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 Hidden Figures. But Hidden Figures is the perfect movie for the moment, and it's a very sweet nature, yeah. you know, patri- actually patriotic. Uh, but put know, it this way: the voters, the Academy voters, don't all don't really see all the pictures they don't really see them they they get the screeners they mean to they promise to and they don't really actually see them they they in many ways they just vote on what they think is the right thing to vote for so denzel probably win and and it's highly li- it's possible that hidden figures will win it's the it's the help with math right i mean that's what that is right, but the help but the and, help didn't win and, yeah but that's that's what that's what i'm point, literally point won is that, every yeah that's that's my so, point. Is that like right. they 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 tend to uh, want to correct from past mistakes? Yeah. I mean, La, La Land has you know every portent says La, La Land wins and it it deserves to win, but I would say Hidden Figures is the X factor. Um, I mean, the average Emma, age of these voters is like ninety seven. <laughs> Emma Stone deserves to win if anybody deserves to win. I hope that she does not win because I. Uh, I wrote a piece about five years ago. But that's wait, that's all we need. That's kind of all we need to know about you psychologically. She deserves to win. I hope she doesn't. No, I'll tell you why. Because <laughs> actresses who win Best Actress, their their careers are destroyed, and I I can demonstrate this huh. in case after case, with the possible really? exception of Meryl Streep, say, Reese Witherspoon Meryl Streep wins an Oscar and her career goes down, you know, down the sewer. Um, what? What? How? 
What do you mean down the what? sewer? What are you talking about? Reese Witherspoon won an Oscar for Walk the Line 11 years ago, and she never made a good movie after that. Not one and not a hit. And she Legally Blonde no, is a great, no, great that movie. That was way before. That was four years before she won her Oscar. She, and, she won the I mean, Oscar for the, the one where she hikes around? No, she did not. Oh. She won for she won for Walk the Line playing June Carter, and yeah. uh, there's just a history of young I, I best think, actors. I think not getting outro? not winning an Oscar again is not the same thing as having your career in the sewer. Okay, Gwyneth. Okay, here's what here I'm. I'm Gwyneth. Uh, Hillary Swank wins two Oscars, and she's gone. Um, oh, thank God. Hillary. Yeah, Hillary Swank was a very specific act. I think you're. Okay. I, I think you're Ellen Hunt it. wins an Oscar and pfft. Julia Roberts won the first won, one. Julia Roberts won for Aaron Brockovich and did not have a hit after that. They Nicole take some Kidman time. They, they the pulled themselves together. And, yeah. and okay, I'm just saying this is my theory and I'm sticking to it. I say it's bad for the career of young actresses to win Oscars and Emma Stone is a fantastic young actress and it will be bad for her if she wins. That's all I'm saying. But she is going to win. I will say that it sounds like John has more data on his side than you do, Rob. But Rob, yeah, but but he he's punctuating his data with this noise, which to me sounds like <laughs> yeah, a guy with a very weak argument. I would say this. I would say that if I could if I could forensically look at each one of those suggestions, I think you fall into the uh, trap that people do, where it's like, well, hey. Her career is over. She's made all these disasters, and they're not disasters. They're financially very successful, and she's very happy with the fact that of the things that were offered to her, she did she did great. And in a in an environment where they make fewer and fewer pictures, and 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 basically fewer and fewer pictures with really great female roles, and then you always know you're going to be up against Meryl Streep. They did pretty well. I think she did pretty okay, well. Okay, I am now going to Paltrow, read off. Mary, I'm now going Mary, to read off. Oh for no! You. Don't don't don't! Because I have to go through each one. I, but, no, I have to do it. I have to do it. I'm reading do you, off for do you. Do people have to listen to it? Because yes, they it do. Seems like, <laughs> it seems like everybody's being punished now. <laughs> I'm going to read off for you the films that Reese Witherspoon has made since winning her Oscar, okay? Right. Just Like Heaven, Rendition, Four Christmases, How Do You Know, Water Four Christmases for Made Money, How Do You Know She Was Only in a Scene. Wild. How do you know wild, she was the Wild she was nominated. Wild she produced. And, Inherent wild, Wait, wait. Wild, wild she Wait, Wild she produced and was nominated for an Oscar. She was, and but you said But in your in your universe Wait, in wait, let me finish. In your universe, being nominated for an Oscar and not getting one is your career is in the sewer. How about co starring with Sofia Vergara in a cop buddy movie called Hot Pursuit? How's that for a Okay, anyway. All right, well John what about Sandra Bullock won for the blind side and then she had gravity after that? Oh, but Sandra Bullock is the Sandra Bullock. You know, every every story has a has a, obviously has an exception. But I am saying, and Sandra Bullock was also in her mid forties when she won. I'm saying for young actresses, it's bad. Oh That's all. no! Now, now, now comes the com- for yeah, best whatever. actor. For best actor, I <sighs> think Casey Affleck's performance in a movie that is so depressingly depressing that you can't even believe. You know, want to like just go lie down and cry for 10 days. He is spectacularly good in it. And Denzel Washington is not as good as he ought to be and as he has been in Fences. Nonetheless, I think Denzel is going to win. 
Yeah, good, not watched. good in the movie. This, he's good. This is a good point. That's not why he well, won no, Oscars. So he's won two. He's won two Oscars, and Casey Affleck has won none. On the other hand, Casey Affleck also, like, you know, there's bad publicity about him, and Denzel Washington's a great guy. Everybody likes him, and he he directed this movie, and it's a tribute to the, you know, greatest American playwright of the last half century, August Wilson, whose last, you know, whose uh, posthumous work this is, and it's uh, and Viola Davis's co-star is going to win for Best Supporting Actress, almost certainly, so... Uh, I think he's going to win, but I, I do caution that I'm I'm often wrong. And we are getting a message that we need to wrap this up from our producer, Scott Immergut, one of the uh, finest men in America, and I don't want to disappoint no, no, him. That, that was for me. I didn't finish my other note I was going to say, which is that I hate Oscar pick talk. <laughs> That's just me. Well, blame Scott Immergut, one of the finest people in America, because he... I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it when people do it. I hate when people think it's interesting. I hate it when people in Hollywood think, oh, everyone wants to... What are your Oscar picks? Uh, who cares? Good Lord. How do you think Jimmy Kimmel's going to do as host? Yeah, that's that kind of worse. question. Like, that's I don't... worse. I couldn't I even... Say, I'm wrap up with this. So, of course, as you know, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone sang the two songs that are nominated for La La Land. Right? One is the City of Stars and the other is her big number audition where she wins the big part that changes her life. Um, Spoiler and- alert. So- thanks. Tell me about it. Yeah. Anyway. But you're going to tell me that Hamilton gets shot at the end. No, no, he doesn't. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Anyway, so they sang. And, you know, they're not singers, so you're like, hmm, really? I mean, how did this happen? Maybe they were auto-tuned. Maybe they can't really sing, or maybe they can. So one of the tests that I was putting up for whether or not they could sing was whether or not they would sing at the Oscars. And ah, neither of them is singing at the Oscars. John Legend, who also appears in the movie, is singing both of the songs, thus suggesting that, in fact, on stage live, Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling would sound like the undubbed version of Lena Lamont in singing. Mm-hmm. It. So uh, that there's a piece of like Hollywood cynicism for you to wrap up this edition of glob culture. Uh, Jonah, do you have any place where anyone can see in the next couple of weeks? Um, I'm going to be in Wisconsin on um, March one for this big manufacturing and business the Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce meeting. I don't know if, if, if normal people can, can attend. Um, unfortunately, I just got back. Rob, you're a Yale man, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I just got back from debating at the, uh, at the Yale Political Union. Um, what what, what was the fun. resolution? Resolved what? Oh, it was a terrible resolution, which I told them going in, and it got all messed up. But it was resolved uh, – uh, the elite. We should let the elites rule, which I told them was oh, the most. That's a really excellent. Uh, oh, it was terrible, and yeah. I told them to be debating whether or not elites should rule at Yale is a little like saying, "Should we still get our money's worth from our tuitions?" Um, yeah, but it was. Uh, but I had a, I had a grand time um, afterwards. I went out with uh, some very smart, funny kids from the Party of the Right, and we nice. went went to the uh, to the Owl. Sure yeah, owl, well. of course. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it's 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 a. I mean, I've, I've been there, but it wasn't there when I was. Uh, it was an actual tobacco shop when I was a student. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I'm going to be on special report tonight if Immergut can uh, get this thing done and post it in time to that make that worth knowing. There we go. And Rob, are you just uh, – of course, Kevin can wait. Yeah, it's all I'm doing. 8 o'clock, um, CBS, 8, 8 o'clock um, uh, Monday. Fantastic line this week on, on uh, Thank you. Kevin Can Wait where uh, Kevin and his wife are having an argument about what food – his wife should bring to the church potluck because they're desperate to get in good with the priest because they need the wedding date they want. And Kevin turns to her and says, two words, lasagna. <laughs> and she says, and she's, yeah, that's one yes, word. One word. And he says, no, it's Italian, lasagna. Lasagna. Which was yeah. a fantastic little bit. Anyway, well, Kevin can you. wait. And uh, Commentary has a new issue out. Uh, we'll be posting stuff, including a fantastic article, incredibly depressing, by Nick Eberstadt called Our Miserable 21st Century. That should be up, uh, you know, and, and, and all kinds of uh, great stuff from our uh, March issue. And otherwise, you can see me nowhere. So don't ask and don't look for me. Nobody wants me. Nobody books me for anything. Uh, Buckus, because the liberals, I'm not good enough for the liberals. <laughs> I'm a cuck for the conservatives. <laughs> and so that's my life. So congrat- congratulate me on my obscurity. And gentlemen, we will convene in a couple of weeks. Sure, so. sure. Uh, and I'm sure uh, next week, uh, next next glop, I promise, no Oscar talk. <laughs> I, 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 I don't have to think... talk about what they did. Can you believe the speech that Meryl uh, made? I, I don't think that's a promise you can keep. I mean, maybe you can oh. promise not to talk about crab Oscar, but I don't think you can avoid <laughs> Oscar. Or veal Oscar. Yeah. Veal Oscar, yeah. Oh, I love veal Oscar. <laughs> um, all right, Thank next time, guys. Okay. Keep up love. Ah, Mr. Secretary. Mr. Burr. Sir. And did you hear the news about good old General Mercer? No. You know Claremont Street? Yeah. They renamed it after him. The Mercer Legacy is secure. Sure. And all he had to do was die. Yeah, that's a lot less work. We ought to give it a try. <laughs> now, how you gonna get your debt plan through? I guess I'm gonna finally have to listen to you. Really? Talk less. Smile more. <laughs> do whatever it takes to get my plan on the Congress floor. Now, Madison and Jefferson are merciless. Well, hate the sin, love the sinner. Hamilton. I'm sorry, Burr, I gotta go. But decisions are happening over dinner. Two Virginians and an immigrant walk into a room diametrically opposed foes. They emerge with a compromise, having opened doors that were previously closed. The immigrant emerges with unprecedented financial power, a system he can shape however he wants. The Virginians emerge with the nation's capital. And here's the pièce de résistance. No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. No one really knows how the game is played, the art of the trade, how the sausage is made. We just assume that it happens. But no one else is in the room where it happens. Alexander was on Washington's doorstep one day in distress and disarray. Thomas Plains. Alexander said, I have nowhere else to turn. And basically begged me to join the fray. Thomas Plains. I approached Madison and said, I know you hate him, but let's hear what he has to say. Thomas Plains. Well, I arranged the meeting. 
I arranged the menu, the venue, the seating. But no one else was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened. The room where it happened. No one else was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened. The room where it happened. No one really knows how the parties did. Yes, pieces that are sacrificed in every game of chess. We just assume that it happens. But no one else is in the room where it happens. Madison is grappling with the fact that not every issue can be settled by committee. Meanwhile, Congress is fighting over where to put the capital. <laughs> It isn't pretty. Then Jefferson approaches with the dinner and invite, and Madison responds with Virginian insight. Maybe we can solve one problem with another and win the victory for the Southerners. In other words, oh, oh. a quid pro quo. I suppose. Wouldn't you like to work a little closer to home? Actually, I would. Well, I propose the Potomac, and you'll provide him. Votes. Well, we'll see how it goes. Let's go. No. What else was in the room where it happened? The room where it happened. The room where it happened. No one else was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened. The room where it happened. My God, you got to trust, but we never really know what got to trust. Click boom, and it happened. And no one else was in the room where it happened. Alexander Hamilton. What did they say to you to get you to sell New York City down the river? To know about the dinner was the presidential pressure to deliver. Doesn't matter where you put the U.S. capital, 'cause we'll have the banks. We're in the same spot. You got more than you gave, and I wanted what I got. When you got skin in the game, you stay in the game. But you don't get a win unless you play in the game. Oh, you get love for it, you get hate for it, you get nothing if you wait for it, wait for it, wait. God help and forgive me. I wanna build something that's gonna outlive me. What do you want, girl? What do you want, girl? What you stand for nothing, girl? Ricochet. Join the conversation.